The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Clara Beth Lee will now come and read our scripture. The scripture reading today is from Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took from him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks again, Clara Beth. You did a terrific job reading. I hope you'll do it again. Will you be willing to do it again? Good. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. And uh, we are beginning a new series today, which I'm personally very excited about. We'll spend 10 weeks in the life of Moses and then another 10 weeks in the law of Moses. Uh, Moses is one of the early uh, figures that we experience uh, in the Bible. And uh, today uh, are the circumstances, we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding uh, his birth and his entry into the world, which were quite traumatic. Uh, But I'll start with this. About a year ago, one of the artists in our church released a song that included the lyrics, it's been a long, long year, and it's only April. So that was last year. The pandemic had been uh, going for a couple of months at that time. And now we're uh, a year past that, and we're still feeling the effects of the pandemic. And it feels like it's been a long, long time since we lived in precedented times, right? And imagine, though, what it would have been like to have had 400 years of waiting instead of one year. That was the situation into which Moses was born. Uh, the, uh, the Jews or the Hebrews had been brought by Joseph to Egypt, and they had experienced Uh, much turmoil under the tyrannical leadership of the Egyptian pharaoh. 400 
years. Talk about a long season of waiting. And so as we begin this study on the life and law of Moses, um, it's important to acknowledge from the very beginning of his life, he faced what can universally be said about every person who has ever lived and whoever will live, and that is that to be human in a fallen world is at some point or another to experience suffering, to experience trauma. And what we learn along the way is that suffering has a way of making certain people and breaking other people. It's a lot like the heat of the sun. It will melt certain things like wax or if you carry you know Carmex or Blistex or some kind of lip balm in your car in the heat of summer it, it, it turns into liquid and you, you, know, you open it up and it's, it's kind of gross and, and you don't want to put it on your lips because it melts from the heat of the sun. But there are other things like concrete that harden because of the, the, the heat of the sun. And in the same way, there are certain human hearts that melt and become pliable and that become receptive to the things of God when the heat of suffering and hardship comes. And then there are certain human hearts that harden and get bitter like concrete. I've known a lot of people over the years who have gotten a cancer diagnosis, a terminal cancer diagnosis. One man in particular that I remember from years ago, when he got his diagnosis, it was right after he had reached the retirement years, and the diagnosis uh, had the effect of, of deep bitterness. He, he became bitter at the people around him, bitter at the universe, bitter at, at God, then another friend who has recently been diagnosed with uh, another violent form of cancer became better instead of bitter. And that's Tim Keller. Many of you know his story. Many of you may have heard his interview that he, that he did recently with, um, with Justin Taylor and Kevin DeYoung, where he was asked the question, what's it been like to fight cancer? And his answer was, my fight has never been with cancer. My fight is against my response to cancer. That's what I'm really fighting, is, is how my heart engages difficult, traumatic circumstances and belief in God, which is going to uh, override and overrule the other. Some people become bitter, other people become better. What we've got here is a picture of a handful of people who become better through suffering. And it's because of a couple of things. It's because of the signs of God that are there if we, if we have the hearts that are able to see them, that have been opened in order to see them and perceive them. There are signs of God that are there in our suffering. And the other thing is that there are signs of God that are there in our weakness if we have the eyes to see them. And then the final point will be, don't miss the point. So, so let's start with the first. There are signs of God that are there in our suffering if we have the eyes of faith to see them. Sometimes when God seems like he is completely absent, these are actually the occasions where he might be more present and more active and more at work than any other time. 
Hebrews chapter 11. It's in the New Testament. It gives us a definition, a very clear definition of the meaning of biblical faith. And it says that faith is the evidence of things that we hope for. And it's being certain of things that we do not see. And then it lists a series of people, especially Old Testament believers, who had to live by faith. And, and, and it, gives each, it gives a number of object lessons of different people who live by faith according to this definition of being certain of things that we cannot see with our eyes. And Moses was actually one of those people that was listed. And what it says about all these different people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rahab, Moses, etc., is that they were still living by faith when they died, and that none of them received the full promise of God in their lifetime. They only saw the promise of God from a distance. And they didn't see the promise of God with their eyes, they only saw it with melted hearts that were given the gift of faith. Reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a Pfizer chemist several years ago. This was long before COVID, long before pandemics, long before Operation Warp Speed and, and, and you know, this creation of this magnificent vaccine that, that, that is enabling people to slowly reintegrate into life again over time. But I talked to this chemist, and, and, and this chemist, his whole life's work is devoted to cure, finding a cure for what is currently an incurable disease. And I, I said, what's that like? He says it's like this. He says that those of us who are in uh, pharmaceutical research, it's like each of us has been given a short leg to run in a 10,000-mile relay race. And the purpose of my life and the purpose of my work can be boiled down to this. Move the needle a little bit, pass the baton, and die. That's likely going to be what my career is. That I move the needle a little bit in that 10,000 mile relay, pass the baton to another group of researchers, and then die. That's a really good description of the people in the Bible who lived by faith and who are described that way. Again, in Hebrews 11, it says that none of them received the full promise in their lifetime. It doesn't say they didn't receive the full promise. It says that they didn't receive it in this life. So here Moses is in one of the earlier legs in the 10,000 mile race to redemption. And these circumstances around Moses' entry in the world are surrounded by two kinds of trauma. One is national trauma and the other is maternal trauma. So the national trauma is this. The Jews uh, were immigrants. They, they had immigrated to, uh, to Egypt 400 years or so prior. And all along the way, it says earlier in chapter 1, they'd been oppressed by the Egyptian pharaoh and made into slaves. But it says this, it says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the worse things got for them, the greater their population became in this land to which they had become immigrants. And so from Pharaoh's perspective, the, the, the Jews were a minority that was 
now threatening to become a majority in Egypt. And so Pharaoh is getting nervous because he's recognizing these Hebrews are becoming too strong for him to control. And so he decides to try to do something about it, and he does so in three phases. First, he makes them into slaves, and like I said, they multiplied. They only got more threatening to him, so to speak, as he tried to oppress them and keep them down. And so the next phase was he ordered all the midwives, all the Hebrew midwives, that whenever a Hebrew boy was born, that they were to kill the boy at birth. And there we have one of history's first recorded acts of civil disobedience. The, the Hebrew midwives didn't comply in the same way that, that, that those who hid the Jews during the Holocaust did not comply with Hitler's orders. Because there was something higher at stake. There was a justice issue and a mercy issue and an image of God issue that, that, that made it worth even risking their lives rather than obey the word of a tyrant to injure their neighbors. And when Pharaoh didn't get his way under those circumstances, he, he tripled down and, and he ordered a mass genocide and he ordered every citizen, if you ever encounter a Hebrew boy of a certain young age, you are to drown that boy in the Nile River. Let the girls live, but drown all the boys, which, of course, this decree leads to a mother's trauma. It gets very individual and personalized and specific. It's not just a national thing. It's also a personalized thing. It says in verse 3 that the mother can hide Moses, her baby boy, no longer, and so she puts him in a basket by the riverbank, lets him go. You know, Philip Ryken uh, said that, that, that she is tucking her own heart. As she's putting her child in the basket, she is tucking her own heart into the basket. If, if you'll take a look at the slide here, this is a, uh, this is a, a sculpture that I, that I put up there two or three years ago. It's by a, an artist named Albert Georgie, and it's called Melancholy, and it's, it's a depiction of grief. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a mother who had previously lost her own son to a tragic, in a tra tragic accident. And she said, you know, when you showed us that sculpture, the thought came to me that that hole, until heaven, that hole in my heart is never going to go away. It's never going to get small. You cannot... You cannot eliminate a hole that has been blown in a mother's heart. And, and you know, just imagine what this mother is going through as she lets go of her baby son at the side of the river. Not to kill him, but, but in hope. Hoping beyond hope that somehow he would be rescued. You know, next Sunday is Mother's Day, and you know, as, as every mother knows, with love comes heartbreak at some point or another. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He says, you love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And he says, the only place to escape 
the grief and the pain that comes with love is hell. It's the only place that you can escape the grief of love. Is the one place where love doesn't exist. So she's faced with two impossible options. Either hand her child over to Pharaoh, obeying the decree, and that would blow a hole in her heart as Pharaoh eliminates her son, or let go of her son, entrust her son into the hands and heart of God, which is also going to blow a hole in her heart because everything in her physiologically and emotionally and otherwise is telling her nurse that child, hold that child close, protect that child. But now she's reached a point where it's impossible to do so anymore. And it does raise the question, where is God in all of this? So, so here's, here's, here's the commentary on that question. It's later in the chapter in verse 24 where it says that God heard the groaning of his people Israel. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people and God knew. There was an empathy there in this invisible God. Some of you, some of you have watched the show, I'm sure, The Chosen. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's uh, an interesting platform, but it's a wonderful interpretation, I believe of the gospel narratives and, and the person of Jesus Christ. And there's one scene where Nathaniel, before he becomes a disciple of Christ, he's sitting alone under a tree and he's in turmoil because he's seeking God and God seems invisible to him and he's in torment. He's tortured and, 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 and he's crying out to God. He, it's as if he's yelling to a silent sky, as I know some of you have in your lifetimes as well, during certain seasons of hardship and trauma and difficulty. And there's no answer that comes from the sky. And, and he finally says, do you see me? And again, silence. Later on in the narrative, he's introduced to a man named Jesus. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the tree. And that's all it took for Nathaniel to say, you, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, and to, to give his life, that he was seen. You know, John Stott, whom Nathan Tasker quotes a lot from up here, which I love because John Stott is a model pastor to me. In, in, in so many ways. But one of the things that Stott said in his book on the cross of Christ is that pain is bearable to us. But the apparent absence of God, that's the thing that's unbearable, especially for believers. And you can imagine this mother going through that pain where God seems absent. And, and, and yet, they're little breadcrumbs that, that, that God drops into this, this traumatic season of Moses' mother's life to demonstrate that he's there, that, 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 he, that he hears, that he remembers, that he sees, that he knows. Into the scene comes the daughter of Pharaoh himself, of all people. And that's scary, right? Because you know that she was raised to, to treat Jews with belligerence, with violence, and yet she's the only hope. And so courageously, Moses' sister Miriam shows herself because Pharaoh's daughter is showing interest in Moses. And there's this 
exchange that goes on. But one of the things that it says here is that Pharaoh's daughter saw, sent for, and took Moses the child. Now, those are very familiar words to a, to a Jewish person who has studied the Old Testament. Because those same words were used about David. Where it says that King David saw, sent for, and took Bathsheba, another man's wife. Abused his own power to commit an act of infidelity with his good friend and neighbor's wife and then to commit an act of murder in order to cover it up. But there's an addition to those words in her case. She not only saw, sent, and took the child, she saw, sent, took, and took pity on the child. Why? Be specifically because he was a Hebrew child. So even in the heart of this young woman, there's a reaction, there's a protest against the violence and evil that, that, that her heart had been melted to recognize in her own father. And what happens after this is Miriam negotiates a, you know, a situation where you know, she goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, well, you, you probably need a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, right? If you're going to adopt the child. And she says, well, of course, do you know anybody? Well, I, I think I do. And then brings son and mother back together. And the mother not only gets her son back, she also gets a salary. You know, the, 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 the daughter of Pharaoh asks her to nurse Moses the child with all the protection of Pharaoh's household and pays her for it. Little crumbs along the way. And of course we could ask the question, well that's only three years that the mother gets to be reunited with her child and then she has to give him up again. You know, where's, the, where's God in that? Well, this is where I think Ann Voskamp is very helpful in her book, 1,000 Gifts, where she talks about developing the discipline of noticing. In a hard, broken world, it's essential, especially for the people of faith who believe that this world, this life that we're living in a fallen world, as, as C.S. Lewis says, we're still just living in the prologue. Chapter 1 doesn't begin until after we have been risen from the dead, just as Christ is risen from the dead. And then real life begins. Full life, unhindered, uninhibited life begins. We're still living in the prologue. We're still living in the introduction and the table of contents is where we're living right now. And so what Ann Voskamp says is we've got to develop the discipline of noticing things about God, the, the, the crumbs, the breadcrumbs he drops for us along the journey to remind us we are going somewhere, that there is a feast that is awaiting us at the end of all of this muck and mess. That there really is. Back in seminary, I did an independent study in my chosen topic was suffering and the sovereignty of God. And there's an interview that I did with one of the professors at the time. His name was David Calhoun. He just passed away recently. He was a history professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And he at the time had been diagnosed with two forms of cancer. One was presumed to be terminal. This was over 30 years ago. And I asked him the question, what have you learned 
about God, about life, about stuff. You know, with, with, with two forms of cancer. And he says, I think the thing that I've learned is that all this stuff we say we believe is true. It's all true. And, and what Paul wrote from a prison cell when he wrote to the Philippians, that we must rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice, that there's reason to. And all Dr. Calhoun was doing was he was noticing the breadcrumbs that, that God had dropped for him even during that season. Another such experience uh, that, that I got to have with my wife, Patty, was when Johnny Erickson Tata invited the two of us to have a personal tour of the Johnny and Friends uh, uh, offices and facilities and essentially you know, everything that she had built her life and ministry around. It's a ministry for people with disabilities and special needs, which if you've been around Christ Pres long enough, you know that's very close to our heart as a church. And she loved us by giving us over two hours of her personal time, telling stories about the goodness of God in her life. But the first thing that she did was she took us to the room that held all of her paintings. And there's this jar of paintbrushes, and now Johnny is paralyzed from the neck down, has been for over 50 years. And so the paintings, which are all beautiful, she's done all with her mouth as she's held paintbrushes in her teeth and, and, and painted like this. And you look at the, the jar of paintbrushes and they've all got teeth marks on them. It's glorious. Little crumbs in the form of teeth marks on paintbrushes. Little crumbs in the form of paintings done by a woman who cannot move from the neck down in order to give glory to God any way that she can. And, and we started talking, I don't, I don't know how we entered this discussion, but we started talking about Revelation chapter 21 and the new heaven and the new earth and the promise that there will one day be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And she started to tear up. And, and she said, you guys, please tell me that it's true. I know that it's true. I believe that it's true, but I need somebody to tell me again that it's true. And she's, she's weeping and we're like, it's true, it's true. And then she looks over at my wife and she says, Patty, there's a box of Kleenex over there. Please grab one of those and wipe my nose for me, will you? And it was one of the most sacred moments that we've ever experienced. Is a woman, this woman whom we've esteemed and learned from and, and been so encouraged by for so many years before we'd even had a chance to meet her, is all of a sudden doing what Jesus did for the woman at the Samaritan well by asking us to serve her. Later, she would burst out into a hopeful hymn, just solo, about the goodness and mercy and kindness of God. The whole thing took our breath away. And as I walked away, one of Johnny's quotes came to mind, where she once said, sometimes God allows things that God hates in order to accomplish things that God loves. It's remarkable. There are crumbs there. And what the Moses story does is it gives us an invitation to notice them, to journal about them, to give thanks along the way. There are also signs of God in our weakness, and I'm going I'm to run through this one. 
But right here it says that Moses' mother saw, this is verse 2, that he was a fine child. Now, looking at the Moses story, I can only assume that there's some maternal bias in here, right? Like everybody thinks their kid is the cutest, right? The mother saw that he was a fine child. Well, that's what some people call rose-colored glasses. That's what they call beer goggles in college. Why do I say this? Well, it's a curious statement because as you, as you watch Moses' life unfold, you'll notice that he, he's resistant to God's call on his life. That happens at the burning bush. He's disabled in his speech. He's called to be a prophet, and yet he's got a stutter. In his autobiography, remember he wrote the first five books of the Bible. In one of those books, it says that Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. That's a self-defeating statement right there. (laughs) Not seeing yourself very clearly, are you, mister? He has a temper. Next week, we'll talk about how he kills an Egyptian, which was an unjustified killing. He strikes a rock later on because he has a bad temper. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's resentful toward God for giving him such difficult people to shepherd. They're all just critical all the time and they're whining about this and that and, and God disqualifies him from being able to see the promised land for that, for his temper. So Yeah, he's special, all right, but the only reason why we can call him special is because God has made him that way. When Moses comes down from Sinai, after God gives him the Ten Commandments, he says that his face is glowing, but his face is only glowing in the same way that the moon glows. It's a derivative light. It's it's the light from the sun that makes the the moon shine in the same way that it's only the light of God that, that, that gives any shine to a flawed man like Moses. In Moses, we see a cosmic principle at work. God shows up strongest when we are at our weakest. It dawns on me when I read stories like this that there's really no reason why I should have ever become a pastor. The only time God was mentioned in the home that I grew up in, it was as a cuss word. Never been to church. Church was a subject that brought out bitterness rather than joy in the home that I grew up in. I'd never heard of a catechism, had no idea what an RUF was until I was 26 years old. I lacked the skill, the essential skills to do what I do. The worst grades that I ever made were in public speaking and writing. Reminds me, I can't help but remind me of a phrase that's been spoken in the traditional black church for years. God will make a way out of no way. And that's what he's doing with Moses. That's what he's doing with all of these key players in Moses' story. Israel, the more Pharaoh oppressed Israel, the more they multiplied. Pharaoh's daughter, here's what Alec Moitier, the theologian, says about her. She came from a savage and heartless royal family capable of an edict of genocide, of commanding that babies should be thrown into the river. 
And yet she was a girl with a tender maternal heart. It wasn't just the river, but also the royal house that was subordinated to God's overruling providence. The very same royal house which had decreed death was made the instrument of life. There's poetic justice that happens here. Moses is raised and educated on Pharaoh's dime. This is a young, this is a boy who was supposed to be killed because of Pharaoh's decree and now he's being raised and educated on Pharaoh's dime. He would be trained in Egyptian literature, rhetoric, scribal arts, and warfare, all of which would prepare him to eventually defeat Pharaoh and lead the, the people of Israel out of slavery to freedom. And Pharaoh would pay the bill for the whole thing, from his, from his weaning years to his education. There's a lot of poetic justice that's going on here. And then there's the Hebrew women in verses two, through, 2 and 4. It says, the mother hid the child from violence. The sister suggests a nurse, and, and, and the two are reunited. These women in Moses' life, one, one really important little crumb here, little detail here, is these women have names. And the Bible makes sure that we know that they have names. The midwives' names are Shifra and Pua. The sister's name, we later find out, is Miriam. The mother's name, we find out, is Jochebed. This is a statement put next to another non-naming situation that's also a statement. Nowhere in the Bible is the name of Pharaoh given. In retrospect, we see that Pharaoh, the king of the world at the time, is in reality nothing more than a supporting actor in the story of Moses and Shifra and Pua and Miriam and Jochebed and Israel. Then, of course, there's Moses, the unlikely survivor. He's fearful, but God makes him bold. He can't speak, and yet God makes him the messenger of the Torah and eventually the Ten Commandments. It all points to what Ephesians 2 says. As for you, you were dead, but God. You were dead, but God made you alive. So don't miss the point. Moses is also a pointer. You know, there's a place in Luke chapter 24 where it says that beginning with Moses, Jesus explained to, to a group of people all that the scriptures had to say concerning him. Beginning with Moses. If you go to Luke chapter 9 verse 31, you see this explicitly. It's the, the account of the transfiguration. And it says that, that in the presence of Peter, James, and John, three of, three of the central disciples of Christ, there was a vision of Jesus speaking with Moses and, and the prophet Elijah. And an interesting detail in here, when, when, when Jesus and Moses and Elijah are speaking, it says that they spoke about Jesus' departure. And the actual Greek word for departure is exodus, exodus. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. So Moses' life is just preparation. Moses' life is not the point of Moses' life. Moses' life is the pointer to a prophet greater than Moses who would later come, who would also be a baby in a basket. His mother would 
put her heart in this makeshift baby basket called a manger. His mother, who also had a name, Mary. And, and there would also be a decree from another megalomaniac tyrant named Herod, who would issue a decree to kill all of the firstborn sons in the land. But Jesus, like Moses, was kept alive by the providence of God. His mother with a name put her heart in a basket. She nursed him and eventually also had a hole blown into her heart as she watched her firstborn son die on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus, like Moses, was from the royal house. God is his father. He's named the Prince of Peace, the King of the Jews, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Nowhere is Jesus ever anyone's supporting actor. He's a king with a name, whose name means God of salvation. Jesus also, like Moses, is a beneficiary and benefactor of poetic justice. You know, the, the authorities think that they succeed in putting Jesus to death. They think that they succeed in putting him to death, in ending his revolution, but it really just triggers and, and, and ignites his revolution. And here we are, over a third of the world now, following Christ 2,000 years later. The authorities are foiled again because the fabric of the universe once again confirms that what evil means for evil, God turns it into good, which is, of course, something that we sang earlier. Sometimes God does give evil some rope, but only enough rope with which to hang itself. In the end, the joke is on Pharaoh. In the end, the joke is on the Roman Caesar. In the end, the joke is on the devil himself. They all get hung like Haman did in the book of Esther on their own gallows that they thought they were preparing for someone else. Because nobody can defeat the providence of God. Not even the one who thinks he's the king of the world. What evil means for evil, God turns into good. And again, to quote Johnny, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish the things that God loves. But, and as he does, let's, let's not miss the breadcrumbs along the way. We are people who are invited to grieve. It's right there in Thessalonians. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who are without hope. Because Christ has overcome the world. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you stand with me? We'll pray together as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. How did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are at work all the time. I'm struck by what it says in Romans 8:28 that you work all things together for good. 
even the bitter ingredients, when put together with your providence, with your care, with the fact that you see us, that you remember, that you know, that you hear the groaning of your people. Even the bitter ingredients like salt or baking powder in, in a cookie mix work together towards something beautiful and good, especially when the heat gets turned up. Lord, this is a profound mystery to us, and it doesn't diminish or belittle very real grief and very real trauma and very real suffering. It says here that you heard the cries and the groans of your people, which means they cried and they groaned with tears that you gave them from tear ducts that you created. Teach us, Lord, to grieve but not without hope, to know that we still live in the table of contents, we still live in the prologue, but there is a chapter one that's coming, and, and that chapter one is chapter one and only. New heaven and new earth. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. We thank you, Lord, that there will be an end to pandemics, that there will be an end to the waiting. There will be an end because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.